Hi, my name is Emma Quigley. I'm a Senior Vice President of Institutional Business Development at Angel Oak Capital Advisors, and I am joined today by Namit Sinha, who serves as Angel Oak CIO of Private Strategies. Hey, Namit. Hey, Emma. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Great. Awesome. Why don't you tell me a bit about yourself and your background? You know, how did you get started in the mortgage-backed and securitized product space? So I started my career in the space in 2002 um, when I um, joined Lehman's Mortgage Modeling Group. For a couple of years, I was building models uh, to predict borrow behavior uh, on the non-agency loans. And then subsequent to that, I moved over to loan trading, which I did at Lehman right up until the end. Moved over to Barclays when we were taken over at Barclays and then um, spent some time at Nomura doing loan trading. In 2014, I made a switch to the buy side. I moved over to Canyon Partners, uh, where I was responsible for um, building the loan trading business there, particularly on the distressed loan side. And then in 2018, March is when I uh, switched over and moved to Angel Oak in Atlanta and have been there since. Right. So... Canyon is in Los Angeles. Now you're in Atlanta. There had to have been more than world-class public transport in the Braves to get you here. What did you find attractive about Angel Oak as an asset manager and a lender? It's a, it's a very interesting question because, um, you know, not just me, uh, I had to move my family from Los Angeles and that was uh, quite a task. You know, 75 and sunny every day of the year is actually tough to beat and that was clearly not the reason why I made the move but it was um, it was a great opportunity at Angel Oak while um, Canyon is a great firm and I was doing some pretty interesting things but the legacy RMBS world was moving away from the distressed asset side and Angel Oak was at the forefront of recreating the RMBS 2.0 world. In effect, I was, while by making the move, I was betting uh, on a, a rebirth of the mortgage market on the non-agency side with Angel Oak at the at the helm of it and that was really interesting and in hindsight it was a great decision for me obviously because we have uh, shown some tremendous growth in the non-QM space since I joined here. Yeah absolutely. So why don't you describe your role at Angel Oak at present as um, the CIO of the private strategies and and how do you work with the affiliated mortgage origination companies on a day-to-day basis? I firmly believe that uh, the returns in the strategy are made at the time a loan is locked because a lot of what happens to that loan subsequently uh, depends on how good a job you did in terms of finding the right quality borrower, putting that loan through that right, you know, underwriting guidelines and, and having the right guardrails around your origination process. So I work and my team works very closely with the mortgage lending side to make sure we have the right set of guidelines and guardrails around the origination process and we sort of fine tune that in real time. Once these loans are are originated. These loans are bought by the private funds that I oversee as well. And uh, once we take over these loans, we carry them up until we have critical mass to securitize these loans. Obviously, during the interim, we hedge for interest rate risk, etc., to make sure that uh, the interest rate component is covered in terms of securitization. And once we have critical mass, we we work with the rating agencies, we work with the broker dealers to bring these uh, deals out to the market and place the senior parts of the capital structure. And then these private funds uh, retain the the bottom part of the capital structure, including the interest-only components. Overall, we have done more than 23 securitizations over the last five years, and uh, we are getting to a point where uh, where we'd be bringing about one deal a month going forward. So obviously, we have a lot of penetration in, in that capital market space. We have a lot of credibility in that space. So when we bring out a deal, we do get uh, a very good levels of subscription from the end investors. Um, so effectively, you know, it's creating the right kind of loans, buying the loans, hedging as much of the risk as we can, securitizing these loans, 
placing the senior part of the capital structure, retaining the bottom, and then managing those risks, including when these deals eventually become callable, managing that callability aspect of these deals, all a part of what, what we do as a team. The Angel Oak shelf has made uh, a real name for itself in the market. Let's go back to talking about the benefits of having this integrated model with the affiliated mortgage companies. So you talked about creating a loan profile at the point of origination. Do you have any analytical framework or modeling that your team uses to adjust that? Um, absolutely. So what we do is we collect a lot of the data around performance of these loans almost on a daily basis. That database is used to crunch information out and make sure we understand any changes to the loan performance that might be happening on the ground. Very early stage markers of loan performance is what we look for. That would explain an out of ordinary, you know, delinquency level or, or prepayment behavior of these borrowers. We also build statistical models around the data that we have collected over the last four or five years to predict this, the, the way the borrowers are going to behave under different macro environment, including changing home prices, uh, changing unemployment levels. So we use all of that information and data that we have collected to build uh, statistical models that can predict these, uh, the behavior of these borrowers under different environments. And we use that to reflect in the underwriting guidelines that we are creating. So for example, in an environment where we expect housing to be strong, assumptions around what FICO and LTVs would make sense would be very different than an environment if we expect housing to slow down or soften up, then what we would be comfortable in terms of guideline would be very different. So it's not an absolute FICO LTV debt to income that defines our program, but it inherently includes our view of what the macro environment today looks like and what we expect it to look like in the next uh, year or two out. So speaking of stress cases, we had our first real-world stress scenario post-Great Financial Crisis with COVID-19 back in March of 2020. So how did that event shape your underwriting guidelines, and how did Angel Oak respond? So it's, uh, it's very interesting. The borrower behavior immediately in the post-COVID world was something that defied any of our understanding around what drives borrower behavior. So when, when you think about borrower behavior, you, you automatically think about FICO as a huge driver of performance, a loan to values as a big driver of performance, debt to income, the document type that is used to underwrite these borrowers, even things like whether the loan has a co-borrower on it uh, versus a loan without a co-borrower, they have very, very different levels of performance. Uh, but in the early stages when we started receiving these requests for forbearances and you looked at your, the profile of the loans which had forbearance versus the ones which did not, you could not find uh, an explanatory uh, variable that would explain why that particular borrower was asking for forbearance versus the other borrowers not asking for forbearance. And at that point in time, we had estimated that, you know, what had really happened was the shock in the system was so immediate and it was so quick that borrowers were in a state of panic and it wasn't really a true reflection of the underwriting or the credit attributes of these borrowers. And as things calmed down and we, we would see in the re-performance rates of these borrowers, the true reflection of mortgage credit. And that is exactly how it played out. So when, when the initial delinquency spike happened, from that point onwards to today, more than 80% of these borrowers have actually either paid in full or have cured and become current or are in some form or fashion working towards becoming current. And the remaining borrowers are the lower FICO, the higher LT, the higher debt to income, all of those things that would explain true borrower behavior have come out and explained the actual performance of these loans. So uh, one of the important highlights of COVID versus any other cycle is it was driven not just by a deterioration of macro factors like housing 
which happened in global financial crisis where home prices went down 40% 35 to 40% nationwide and the borrowers who had taken a loan in 2006 or 2007 they were so far out of the money on their mortgages that that defined how they would behave and that happened over a period of two to three years so compared to covid it was a very slow moving train wreck in covid borrowers really did not have that opportunity they were in a state of shock especially our our self-employed borrowers whose income went to zero almost overnight and so before they could figure out what what really were the options in front of them they went and started asking for forbearance also there was a lot of um, media around it or a lot of mixed messages coming out of policymakers where it wasn't very clear what a forbearance meant versus a payment holiday or a complete forgiveness so all of those things played a role in the borrower behavior in the post-covid world that made it very different from any other event that uh, that we have seen in the past yeah absolutely maybe let's just take a second to walk through forbearance in really high level terms you know what is it how long does it last in what situations would it be granted and are the assets still cash flowing during that window so forbearance um, is something that has been used as a loss mitigation technique you know even before covid in covid it became more streamlined because it came through policymakers where it became almost synonymous as a response across different mortgage lenders services etc where borrowers suddenly lost the ability to make any payments and it happened so quickly that the first response was to provide borrowers with a forbearance option in general the way forbearances are made is for a period of time whether it be 3 months 6 month 9 month forbearances where the borrower is allowed to not make payments during that time frame it will not impact their credit so they will not get reported to the credit bureaus and after that forbearance period expires usually the servicer is supposed to work with the borrower and then provide them with more lasting loss mitigation options which could include if the borrower comes out of that forbearance completely healthy then the borrower can catch up on their payment by mis- making all the missed payments and becoming current So how did Angel Oak manage through and post the forbearance period? What loss mitigation strategies have you implemented and where do you see defaults shaking out once all the dust has settled? We gave a forbearance period to the borrowers and then we started looking into the financials and offering them more stable loss mitigation based on the actual financial condition of the borrower. More than 30% of our borrowers called in for forbearance and then eventually 40% of those borrowers never actually went delinquent. So even though they called for forbearance, their financial condition was stable enough that they continue to make their payments even though they were granted forbearance. The remaining uh, 60% that did go delinquent, you know, seven, you know, a lot of those borrowers have actually, as I mentioned, 75 to 80% of those borrowers have actually paid in full of cured. Currently, uh, out of our all the uh, loans that Angel Oak services or manages, about a little more than 5% is currently 60 plus delinquent. So we have come a long way from, from that 33-34% forbearance numbers. You know, one of the things that has also worked in our favor is the housing market has been very, very strong. So when you have 10-15 points of home price appreciation on an annual basis, these borrowers are delevering and building up a lot of equity in their homes, you know, every single passing month and when that happens the intent to repay becomes stronger for these borrowers so when you have the intent to repay then you're really worrying about the other aspect of loan performance which is the ability to repay and to the extent these borrowers find that their business income is improving which it has because of the reopening of the economy and and a lot of good things that have happened including policy support etc over the last one year that businesses have uh, have have improved their cash flows by quite a bit and that has reflected in our performance as well so at the end of it 
we do not expect a, a lot of losses to flow through in the remaining delinquent population because while these borrowers started out with an average of 75 loan to value over the last couple of years they've built uh, 15 20 points of home price appreciation they sit with a lot of equity in the homes and that encourages them to continue to make the payments but to the extent that the borrower really has no ability to make that payment the resolution that's going to eventually happen will not lead to a lot of loss to the trust and so you're going to see a lot of these zero loss or very low loss liquidation events happening from these uh, groups of borrowers so it sounds like going into the pandemic underwriting was pretty solid and then also post pandemic angelo responded well tightening origination guidelines and then also working with borrowers with loss mitigation techniques how else was angelo positioned going into the pandemic uh, maybe in terms of its financing arrangements and liquidity that really helped it that really prevented it from being a forced seller of assets um yeah so what what we had always uh, emphasized on is uh, the financing risk that we have once the funds buy these loans and to the, the time it takes to securitize these loans and so how we manage that financing risk is through diversification in sources of financing in addition to that there were many opportunities outside where we could buy loans at steep discounts we would not have had the opportunity to buy these loans which we did had we had limited sources of financing and that limited source of financing was out of dry powder so all of those things really helped us from a point of view of post covid uh, underwriting changes etc you know even in the pre covid period we are very data focused very data centric and there were certain aspects of our loan originations that we thought needed some improvement so we had been changing guidelines for example a non prime population went from 10% to 3% in a pre covid world it wasn't you know looking out for covid that we make those changes but we thought it made sense and that actually helped us because that population of loans that we originated with the new guidelines in the pre covid period has had superior performance in the post covid period as well loan origination cannot be looked at in isolation it has to be looked at in terms of the macro environment that the loan has to go to and uh, once covid hit we knew that the unemployment rates are, are elevated and while we did believe that housing is going to remain strong because of a lot of factors that we have hit on in the past but there was a certain amount of risk that we were taking so we became really conservative in our underwriting guidelines our fico scores went up quite a bit our loan to values went down if you see our post covid originations uh, that went into securitizations the average fico scores are 20 points higher the average loan to values have gone down and as the unemployment rates tick down we sort of try to normalize it back to the pre covid level so it's always going to be you know not in isolation but in how the macro environment present itself is how we're going to look at uh, how we change our guidelines on underwriting so let's take a minute to talk about the securitization markets in the wake of covid has there been a change in the landscape from a, an issuer perspective it uh, you know there, there are certain things that have changed and almost everything for the better you know in the post covid world there was just a flood of liquidity that came into the space obviously we all know that fed came in in a big way to support the markets and that created a lot of liquidity there was a supply uh, side slowdown as well because uh, you know we were you know in the pre covid period we hit peak origination of 400 million in the post covid world our originations went down to zero and that was uh, replicated across the industry and across asset classes where the supply of assets just went down to uh, very close to zero and then slowly started building up so on one hand you had a build up of demand from 
investors who wanted to put money to work in money good assets. And on the other side, the supply of these assets went down and securitizations became very infrequent. And that created a lot of demand for these assets. And so every time we went out to securitize in the post-COVID world, we saw better and better levels of subscription to a point where deals were like four to five times oversubscribed. Spreads came into historical tight. And the other aspect of what drives our funding cost, in addition to spreads, is the interest rate, which obviously you know, collapsed because of COVID and because of what Fed had to do in response to COVID. So when, when you look at the funding cost on our deals, we have in, you know, we have had deals where we have placed more than 95% of the capital structure, a little over 1%. And, and that has happened when the loan coupons have been closer to 6%. And that creates a very, very healthy and thick excess spread that drives returns for our funds, which has been very, very supportive for us. So all of these things have made the capital markets very attractive for an issuer at the current moment. Right. So spreads have really never been this tight, and non-QM issuers are able to achieve an incredibly low cost of debt through the securitization structure, as you mentioned. And these levels have managed to persist for a solid year now. Do you think that this market is sustainable, and how do you see it playing out in the next year? Predicting what rates are going to do is always tricky. But one thing to highlight here is that non-QM, the, the capital structure, when we place these bonds, uh, have a very heavy exposure to the front end of the curve. So for us, it is less material or it's almost immaterial what happens to the 10-year or 30-year part of the curve. It is very relevant what happens at the two-year part of the curve, which is more dictated by Fed and how Fed's response is going to be towards, um, you know, potentially rising inflation, etc. We are keeping a close eye on this, you know, at least for the foreseeable future. It sounds like the front end of the curve is pretty anchored. And, uh, you know, when, when you're talking about three years operates at 43 basis points, we if it goes to like 60 basis points, it's not the end of the world. You know, it is actually going to raise our funding cost by another 25 basis points. But, you know, you're talking about AAA spreads closer to 60, 65 basis points today. And it still will create a very, very attractive uh, for cost of funding for us, especially in light of the fact that even today, the loan coupons that we are originating are still closer to 5%. So between the loan coupons being at 5% and our funding cost, uh, given the current spreads market and the rates market still closer, you know, a little over 1%, if rates go up 25, 50 basis points, it's going to matter, but it's not going to materially take away from the fact that capital markets is still very supportive. Now, what could actually, you know, derail this in a meaningful way is inflation would not be considered as transitory, but you know there is an urgent need for Fed to step in and tame it down by hiking, going on an aggressive hiking cycle. None of these things are, are considered the base case by, of the market by any means. But if that were to happen, then the funding cost would go up. But if you consider the fact that non-QM loans have generally fluctuated in rates between five and seven and a half percent in the last four to five years. We are sitting at the low end of the range on the mortgage rate for non-QM. So we do have pricing power. We do have the ability to move mortgage rates higher in response to a drastic change in the funding cost. But for now, I, uh, you know, that's not our base case. For now, the funding cost remains very, very attractive to us. And, you know, the mortgage rates that we can offer to the borrowers where we can generate sufficient volume is still substantially higher than where we are funding the debt structure. So I just want to take a second to talk about Angel Oak being on the forefront of ESG integration. 
uh, within its non-QM platform specifically. So what are some of the benefits and challenges to issuing deals designated as social bonds? Angel Oak issued two this year. Are there any initiatives on the horizon for Angel Oak in the social or green product space? ESG is a, is a, is a very interesting um, uh, topic, especially here in the U.S., because I, you know, I do feel that uh, Europe is a little bit ahead in terms of um, their focus on that topic. If you look at what Angel Oak started out to do in the origination space uh, when we set up the lending platforms, it was really a product uh, for borrowers who were completely cut out of what I call a quasi-nationalized mortgage market. If you had the option to get a Fannie Freddie or a FHA loan, you had the ability to participate in the mortgage market. If you did not, then you were uh, out of luck because there were no private label lenders that were making any sort of non-agency loans in the post-global financial crisis period. When Angelox stepped in to start making these loans and slowly grew that program, it was not lost on us that by definition, we are lending to the most underserved segment, borrower segment in, in the country. At that time, ESG was not a, a real it had not been really been defined. It has not been very well defined even now, but at least as a topic of discussion, it was not very mainstream. But we had been constantly been working around the idea that Angel Oak was a lender to borrowers who were cut out of the mortgage market. They were very underserved. And within that framework, we have moved around from either borrowers who could not qualify for a Fannie Freddie loan because they had a slightly lower FICO, slightly higher debt to income ratio, or the self-employed borrowers who we underwrite based on their bank statements who do not have a product uh, offering available from these traditional lenders. So in that sense, Angel Oak has always been a lender to these to these borrowers. Once ESG dialogue became more mainstream around the idea that ESG uh, on the lending side is a product that can be offered to the market because we are lending to borrowers who are underserved. And then we, we saw some mobility happen out of Europe around this idea that we wanted, that we put a framework around it and we formalized that framework through a third party opinion. And once we were able to do all of that, we brought the first, I would say, a non-agency deal in the country that had the ESG umbrella around it. So uh, it, it was very well received out in the market. There was a lot of interest. There were a lot of interesting conversations that happened around the ESG idea that Angelo brought up. And there's also the challenges where in the US, a lot of those investors are still trying to figure out what qualifies as ESG and what does not. It does not help that there is no one guideline that defines it very clearly. So it, everyone has to do their own work to figure out as a buyer of these uh, bonds, whether that ESG component really serves the purpose that the issuer is claiming it serves. So we have done a lot of hard work, both in terms of origination, in terms of putting a, a robust framework around it and getting the third party opinion around it. We've taken a couple of deals to the market with the ESG umbrella. And, and we do believe that over time, it's going to get more and more mainstream and it's going to get more subscription uh, with uh, ESG specific dollars coming in and subscribing that would allow us to potentially even get some spread advantage around the securitizations that we bring to the market. That was Namit Sinha, our CIO of Private Strategies here at Angel Oak, and I'm Emma Quigley, SVP of Institutional Business Development. Thank you again, Namit, for your time today. That was extremely informative, and thank you all for listening. And if anyone has any questions or would like additional information on our strategies, please email us at info at angeloakcapital.com. Thank you.